Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 27. Again, that's Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can uh, open it to page 775. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came, in, came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the pre- chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of that people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, Then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered John, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Um, good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year. It's good to spend the first Sunday of 2020 with you all. Uh, let's start with a prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most churches start off this week with like vision week. Uh, We're still in Matthew, so (laughs) good stuff. Uh, But this is, once again, I just want to remind you, this is the final week of Jesus' life. 
and he enters Jerusalem, as we heard last week. He enters Jerusalem on a cult that was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, and there is a mass of people shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Here is the Messiah. Hosanna in the highest. Here comes the conquering king, they might have thought. Not only, not only can he heal the sick and the lame, making them healthy, he can feed the hungry. 5,000 men at a time. All he needs is some fish and crackers, and we are cracking to go. We effectively have an army outnumbering the Romans. And they may have been saying to each other, okay, I'm sure you're already convinced that this is going to be a massive rebellion of just incredible proportions. But you're worried about the losses, right? You're worried people may die. However, this past weekend, just a few days ago, Jesus can also, and wait for it, raise people back to life. There he is. He's right there. His name is Lazarus. We saw it with our own eyes. We ate all of his food. This is the Messiah, the Savior that Yahweh promised us. These are the people that saw exactly all the miracles that Jesus did with their own eyes. And I know when we read these accounts, some of these are just outright outlandish. They're insane. How do you take some fish and crackers and feed 5,000 men, effectively perhaps even upwards to 25,000 people? How do you raise someone from the dead? Past three days, four days in the tomb, already starting to rot, and the smell, you can smell it. How do you heal just anybody that's sick? Never fail. Anybody that's sick that goes up to Jesus and he heals them. This is the Messiah. And if you saw it, you would have also probably been part of that fervor that was out there. Hosanna in the highest. This is the Messiah that God has promised us. And after entering Jerusalem on this cult with this huge accolade of people, from people, So many people that it stirs up the whole city. Where does he go? Where does Jesus go? Of course, the Pontius Pilate, right? That puppet of a Roman officer, the guy who's really oppressing the Jews right now, that weak, ineffectual Roman, he'd be easy to stomp. Let's go, Jesus. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem and goes right past Pontius Pilate's house. Well, well, Jesus passed that? Okay. Whoa, okay, I see where he's heading. He's heading into the center of the city, and right next to the temple is Antonia Fortress. This is where the Roman garrison was stationed. This is where the Roman military was. And so I get it, Jesus. You're getting right down to business. You're going right after the military. We are here with you. But no, not even a quick drop in, not even a, 
uh, uh, stopping by to say hello. He's like, hey guys, I'm the new boss in town. None of that. Jesus goes straight to the temple. And we enter into this passage in verse 12 where we read, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. If Jesus were to come here today, he would also baffle many Christians because he would not go to Washington, D.C. This baffles many Christians because we believe that there needs to be reform in the political realm. But Jesus doesn't go to the political realm. Perhaps Wall Street. Jesus should go to Wall Street. And he doesn't go to Wall Street. I am convinced that these days especially, that self-professing Christians honestly, honestly believe that if Jesus came today, he'd overturn tables in the government or condemn the Wall Street elites. And the answer that we see here is no. He will come to the church. Again, he doesn't go to Pontius Pilate's residence or to the Antonia Fortress, named after Mark Antony and uh, Herod had built that in his honor. But he goes to the temple. And the word for temple here is used, it's Heron, which is used to describe the general temple complex. And because we've studied the temple before in our sermon series on Exodus, if you remember, Pastor Paul went through that whole slide and showed you. We first see the outer courts are the Gentile courts. And this is the second temple that was built. And so we see the Gentile courts and the outer courts. From there, you can enter into the women's court. And from there, you can enter into the men's court. And from there, you can enter into the priest's court. In the priest's court was the Holy of Holies. And so when we talk about a general complex, we're talking about the outer courts or the Gentile courts. It was in this outer court of the temple that people start to set up shop. But it wasn't just any kind of shop. There were, there were a string of shops that sold whatever you needed for the temple sacrifice you had to make. And this was known as the bazaar of Annas. Annas was one of the high priests at the time with Caiaphas, and he and his, and his sons, Annas and his sons, were in charge of the shops in the outer court. Remember, the outer court was reserved for Gentile worshipers. So would, that would have meant that they either kicked out the Gentile worshipers to make room for the shops, or they didn't even have Gentile worshipers because of how nationalistic the people became in their temple practices. You're not a Jew? Get out of here. Not only was this abominable practice or disregard happening, the way they set up shops were so that they set up the shops and they sold, they didn't sell like watches and stuff. They sold whatever you needed for the temple sacrifice. So let's say, for example, like in this time and season, you went to the temple for Passover, you would need a Passover lamb. And let's say you're someone that lives really far away. And so 
for each family, there's one lamb that you need to take. You, take, you get um, the most spotless lamb, the blemishless lamb that you have, and then you take care of it. You carry it hundreds of miles potentially, and you carry that spotless lamb so no blemish would get on it, taking care of it. You get to the temple courts, and guess what? Right there is a New Jersey car inspection place. No, the, right there is the priestly inspection place. And then they got to they has to they have to inspect that lamb. And guess what? If they fail your lamb, you don't get a sticker. If you don't get a sticker, you don't get to go in to the temple courts with that. It's not approved. So what did they do? You had to then buy an approved lamb. A lamb with the right sticker on it, with the right color and the right ear. And this approved lamb that they sold was owned by the high priest. Those shops were owned by the high priest. It was a very lucrative business because it's recorded that the going rate of a lamb then was about 10 times more than the market rate. The going rate was about 10 times more. There was a lot of money that was being made. Not only that, you had to pay a half shekel for temple taxes. So you needed to get right down to the right cent because they wanted to be sure, they wanted to be specific, they wanted to be right. So you got to pay the half shekel right down to the cent, but in the right currency. Oh, you can't do that? No problem. We have money changers, and we will give you this service for 25% cover charge. This was a vile practice that was going on in the temple. In fact, there were so many vile practices. If you start reading the historians like Josephus and other people back in that time, you would see that it was recorded that the high priests would take their guards, and you know how the priests lived in, back in uh, Israel's time? The priests live on the tithes of the people. So the people will pay their tithes, and this is how the priests would live. This is how they would eat. That's the only way they can make money. It's according to uh, not just rabbinical law. This is according to the Bible. And so the high priest would go around and take the tithes away from the regular priests. And the older priests could not defend themselves, and they had to give up their tithes. Priests who were to live on the tithes of the people were taken, it was taken away. And so many of the older priests were then reported to have died because of starvation. They couldn't even buy something to eat. Pigeons were for poor people who couldn't afford a lamb. It's in the Bible. The Bible makes an exemption for the real poor who can't even afford to buy a lamb. And so the marketplaces and shops in that temple court area were reported to have sold pigeons because let's say you're poor. You could just grab a pigeon. Let's say you have a son. You know, hey, grab that pigeon So because we can't afford anything. And then let's try to give our offering and be faithful to God and his ordinances. What if they didn't take that? This pigeon is too dirty. You need to get an approved pigeon. They had people who sold pigeons, probably put them in crates. And the going charge wasn't just 10 times more for a pigeon. It was 40 to 100 times more. 
So even the poor couldn't, couldn't even do anything. They couldn't afford a pigeon. You can't do a sacrifice. And there they would be in sin. And if you are in sin, you can't even enter the temple. Otherwise, if you could barely afford it, you were literally, literally drained of any kind of money you had. For the faithful poor person, you were drained to the very last penny. And Jesus comes, the first thing that he does, and he comes and he overturns the tables of these money changers and the seats of all the people who sold the pigeons. And those are the details that followed the statement, Jesus drove out all. And if you read the Bible, it says all. The Greek word for all is the word pantas, which means entire or whole. This is not just hyperbole. Matthew was mentioning this as literally. Jesus literally flipped all the tables and the seats and drove out every single one of the people in this bazaar. And then you have to sit and start to wonder, did no one object? I mean, did no one be like, I don't know who you are, bro. You can't touch my table. Did no one try to stop Jesus? Or was it no one even dared? I believe it was because no one could stand up even to the power and the might and the zeal that Jesus had. This was a miracle in itself. A lot of you you sometimes read this and you're like, man, I wish I was there. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, just some crackers and some fish, and then like, man, I would love to see that. David killing Goliath, man, I would love to see that. Samson ripping off a, like a city door, man, I would love to see that. Like thousands of pounds, guys. Like that's amazing. That's almost unbelievable. But for me, if I had to choose one, it would be this. Like, I want to see Jesus enraged flipping tables. Like, this is a miracle that we see here. There's no way. When people read this, they're like, uh, there's no way. Like, you know how many tables in this bazaar there must have been? How can he keep out everybody? And here is a testament to the power of God. But what's more important than that is what Jesus says. What does Jesus say as he's doing this? In verse 13, he says, It is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is my house. This is what Jesus said. This is my house. Jesus quotes scripture and uses it in the first person, calling this temple his house. Whose house was the temple, though? It was Yahweh's temple. It was Yahweh's house. And I told you that more and more the revelation of who Jesus Christ exactly, who he is exactly, will become unmistakable in this final week of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus takes two portions of scripture and combines them. First is from Isaiah 56.7. And Isaiah 56.7 says, These I will bring to my holy mountain. These are the Gentiles. That's why it's so apt and so incredible that this is in the outer courts of the Gentile courts, right? So these <clears throat> I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's the first portion. My house, my house 
shall be called the house of prayer. And then he says, but you make it a den of robbers. And that's from Jeremiah 7, 11. And Jeremiah 7, 11 says this, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. A house of prayer is a house of worship. Prayer is communion with God. And communion with God is to worship God. Don't you see? When we sing songs of praise here, that's praying. Confessions of faith, confessions of sin, repenting of our sins, that's praying. People went to the temple to commune with God, to have communion with him. Desperate people. And guess what? God met them there. You should be reminded of the matriarch, the mother of Israel, from some whom of you are named after. She prayed desperately in the temple. So much so, so desperately that the priest thought she was drunk. He's like, you're drunk, go home. And she wasn't drunk. She was praying. And God listened to Hannah's prayer and gave her a son. And he called, she called him Samuel. That's the kind of place the temple is. That's the kind of place the temple was designed to be. However, they made it into a den of robbers. What's a den? It's the hidden headquarters of thieves. At first glance at the text, you might have thought, Jesus, flipping tables? Like kicking the seats off the money changers? Jesus, a little extreme, no? But see it in context, and you can ex- how can you not exclaim, How brazen must these people be to claim to be people of God and do this. Do this in broad daylight. Make it a den of robbers. Even now you turn on the TV or attend a quote-unquote Christian conference and preachers will promise you healing. So donate X amount of dollars. And I wonder how many people died of starvation while these charlatans drive around in their Bentleys and their multi-million dollar homes. And that's all done in the name of Jesus. Do you think Jesus would still go to Washington or Wall Street if he came to us today? No, he would come to the church. Doesn't this enrage you? This is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a house of worship. This is what Jesus does. And if you know the context of how this is written, how can you not also exclaim how brazen? And so the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes, these are the guys that own these shops, when they saw them and they saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, here's an addition, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The blind and the lame were not permitted to enter the temple. But when Jesus was there, they could. Why? Because when the blind and the lame came to Jesus, They were not blind and lame anymore. Jesus took up their infirmaries 
And this brings us back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. But Jesus didn't get defiled. This is the crazy part. When sick people and lame people came to Jesus, Jesus wasn't the one that got defiled. The people that came to him were clean, and they were cleansed, and they were made pure and holy. This is what gets the chief priests and the scribes indignant, because on top of all the things that they're seeing, children were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Wait, what happened? Just the children? What happened to everyone else that was shouting this just a few verses ago? Where'd they go? But it's the children that still cry out, Hosanna, after seeing this. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? They were indignant at what the children are saying and still saying. And Jesus quotes Psalm 8 verse 2 saying that God has ordained praise for himself from infants and babies. Babies. And he effectively does at least two things by doing this. He is accepting their praise, not just as the Messiah, but he's pointing out that the accolade that they're saying in eight, uh, Psalm 8 verse 2 is a praise to God. That psalm was a praise to Yahweh, and he's accepting their praise as they are praising Yahweh. He's accepting their praise as he is God. Number two, he points out that they are children, not the wiser adults. It's the children that are giving proper praise and recognition of the true God and King. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning he was returning to the city, he became hungry. You might think this is a separate passage or a separate story. It is not. These are connected. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, which means by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Jesus lodges in Bethany. Again, probably because there are so many people in Jerusalem now because of Passover, during this season, not only was every inn full, a mass of people were making their pilgrimage, and it was told to them and taught to them that they had to stay in Jerusalem. And so they can't just like, oh, here's my sheep. I'm going to go out, you know, get some Panera and come back again. You had to stay in that hotel room. Like, you had to stay in the vicinity of Jerusalem. So you would see a mass of tents in Jerusalem during this time. A lot of people would say this is like tent city during Passover. In the morning, he is returning. He's returning back because Jesus is staying in Bethany. He's returning back, and he sees a fig tree by the side of the road. This means he's walking back to Jerusalem. He was hungry, probably because he expended a ton of calories flipping over table after table, right? And he sees this fig tree by the side of the road, and he sees that as he goes to it, he sees this tree has no fruit, and he curses it. And the tree withers and dies. Savage. Now, so boss, perhaps that's how you thought at first glance, just like the temple cleansing. Isn't this a little too extreme, Jesus? Hangry Jesus is the dangerous Jesus. 
That's what you might think. However, let's look at it again. In the springtime, it's not yet season for figs, like it says in Mark. However, this is the caveat or the detail that's shown to us. Uh, there were leaves on the tree. And this is what everybody back in the area would have understood. Sometimes the fig tree would bear figs earlier, fruit earlier, because you knew this. The way figs come out of the fig tree is first there's leaves and then there's figs. That's how fig trees bear figs, okay? They come out. If there's leaves, you know that there's fruit. So if you saw leaves, you would have every right to expect fruit, okay? So if you saw leaves, you would have every right to expect figs. And the people around Jesus would have known this because they know their hometown. They know how it is. Perhaps we don't. We don't eat figs all the time or ever. I think I maybe ate figs twice in my life. But the people around Jesus would have known because this is their home. It wasn't the season for figs, so Jesus didn't go to any tree. He didn't go to any barren tree. He's like, no figs, die. No figs, die. That's not what he did. He goes to this tree because it has leaves. That means it is advertising fruit. It is saying, I have fruit. And Jesus goes to this tree, and there are no fruit. Jesus curses the tree because it had the promise of life. But upon further inspection, there was none to be found. Are you hearing this? Following the temple cleansing, you would not be able to get away from the fact that these two things are correlated. Jesus expects worship and prayer. Communion with God in the house of God. Jesus expects that because that's what it's supposed to do. That's why it was built. This is the design and plan of God. And once he gets there, he only finds hypocrites in full-blown deception, all the while advertising that they are worshiping God, just as the leaves advertise on the tree that there is fruit. It's upon these hypocrites that the curse is falling on. Hypocrites claim to worship God, but they only worship themselves. Because it's about you being satisfied and not about you satisfying your maker. Your only concern is that you are emotionally fulfilled rather than fulfilling the will of God. Oh, that worship wasn't that good today because I didn't tear up like I usually do in the singing portion. Worship isn't about you getting emotional during the songs. It's about recognizing that what you are singing is the truth. Holy, holy, holy is when we ascribe holiness to God because he is holy. My soul is on fire because this is absolute truth. Now you're just crying, oh, this is so emotionally, like, oh, this is, this is such a good song. I just love singing this song. It's not about you feeling good or being put to an emotional place. It's about your soul being on fire because what you're singing is the truth. And if I had to name, rename the three sections that you see here on the title, from the temple, the fig tree, and God's authority, it would be changed to worship, worship, and worship. And when Jesus saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, 
But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This next section then has to do with worship. Right. Worship. How did the fig tree wither at once? How did that happen? And Jesus starts with amen. He goes, amen. Truly means amen. So he's saying, this is truth that I'm about to drop. So get ready. If you have faith, you can move this mountain and throw it in the sea. Doesn't mean that you need to reach a faith level of 58 to allow you to move mountains. Oh, no, guys, I see you're only level 45. So close. Keep going, guys. Taking this into context would not lead you to think that way. It would have allowed the reader to see that, first of all, the mountain is right in front of them. The Mount of Olives is right in front of them. He doesn't go any mountain. He goes this mountain. That means he was pointing at the Mount of Olives. And then he goes, you could take this mountain and throw it into the sea, which was the Dead Sea, which was in purview of the people that were there. You saw the Dead Sea from there. So you could take this mountain, put it into the sea. Does that mean, does that mean that Jesus wants you to shrivel up fig trees and throw mountains into the sea like Think about how ridiculous that is and how we've come to believe so many ridiculous things when we take things out of context. I really wonder if there are fig trees that people take a pilgrimage on when they go to Israel and they're like, die, you know, I have faith, die fig tree. They go to Mount Olives, throw yourself into the, oh, I'm only level 45, I'm so close, I'll try again next year. I wonder how, how many people do that don't you see how ridiculous that is? <laughs> Poor fig trees. It's always being cursed at, right? Then praying in faith, this is what it means. Praying in faith is a believing prayer, okay? Praying in faith is a believing prayer. Praying in faith is a trusting prayer. Whatever you ask, you will receive if you, have tr uh, if you have faith. This would have been reminiscent of Psalm 34, 7. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean you convince yourself that you're happy with God, God and like, ah, oh, God, I'm happy. I delight myself in the Lord, right? Now give me a car. Give me a nice car. Give me one of those nice electric Porsche cars. That's not what it means. Just as it doesn't mean that now you have superpowers and can fly because you have faith. To delight yourself in the Lord means you trust him. You believe him. That's delighting in the Lord. You worship him. He then molds your heart to be like his and your desires start becoming his desires because guess what? His desires are awesome. So no. God will not give you the crappy desires of your heart as you dictate. Again, it's about communion with God that is being emphasized. Have faith. Trust in God. Only then you will start to see the will of God and receive the power to obey it. You know, to the non-believer, this is not attractive at all. It's like, what? Why should I believe in God if he doesn't give me my money? It's my money, and I want it now. And then that's, that's like you, you're going to sing that little tune. But to the disciple, when you know that God wants what is absolutely best for you, and you actually trust him to do exactly that, 
this will give you such incredible joy. And it will lead you into worship. Verse 23, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus enters the temple again and he starts his teaching. By the way, Jesus is in the temple. What do you think he's teaching? Isn't it what he's always been teaching? Do you really think he's teaching how to successfully flip tables? Guys, if you go to a table, don't go underneath and do this because your biceps are weak, your triceps are stronger. Take the corner and flip it like that. You think you honestly think that's what Jesus is teaching? Jesus, I, you can tell I thought about this last night, right? <laughs> but you think this is what Jesus is teaching? Jesus is not teaching that. Jesus is teaching scripture. He's teaching the good news, the real good news of the kingdom of God. But it was customary during that time for well-known teachers to stop by and ask questions. The crowds loved these exchanges. They delighted in these exchanges, and they welcomed them. But this time, it's not even theological. And it didn't have anything to do with his teaching. Instead, the chief priests and elders asked him, by what authority do you do these things? Instead, that's what they asked him. When you can't challenge the teaching, challenge the teacher. Classic lawyer move. Not that I know anything, but I've seen some lawyer movies, so now I know. I'm just kidding. But don't argue the facts. Crush his credibility. Don't argue the facts. Crush his credibility. That's what's going on. And this is how Jesus answers. Incredibly brilliantly and so profound. Jesus goes, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also... Will I, will, I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he answered them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus brings in John the Baptist. Is John from God or is John from man? But this isn't, just, this isn't just any question. It's incredibly profound because if they say John the Baptist is from God, meaning that he is a prophet, then they have, to, they have the answer to their own question because John the Baptist pointed to Jesus Christ. But if they say he's not from God, then everyone would know that they are lying. Or the best scenario would be they're not sure, which makes them look really dumb. Ultimately, it's because they feared man more than they feared God that they answer in this way. I don't know. The fear of man had blinded them from being able to see God's true revelation in Christ. And because public opinion swayed their responses, they are not able to see God and fundamentally if you can't see God, fundamentally what is going on? They don't even know who they're worshiping. You cannot worship what you do not know. And you cannot know what has not been revealed. In Matthew 13, 11, I'll bring you back there. Jesus says to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, 
but to them it has not been given. This revelation, this opening of the eyes and ears is given to those that follow Jesus, those that are his disciples, those that hear and obey. When Jesus goes to the temple, he teaches. He teaches his disciples about God, about himself, and this is what should happen in the place of worship. When you enter a place of worship, you should hear truths being proclaimed that reveal you to the gospel truth. That while we were still sinners and enemies of God, we're the one that reviled this body when it was supposed to be God's. We took it and we used it for our own glory. While we were still sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. He gave his life as a ransom for the unworthy. But who is Jesus? And when you come into a place of true worship, you will hear of his majesty, his holiness, his awesome power, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his mercy, and his grace. Worship services should not and cannot be about just your soul being elevated. It's not just about you feeling good. It's ascribing to God his greatness, like the children. Hosanna to the son of David. Even if no one else is doing it, even if no one says, I'm going to worship God as he commands in the word, as he desires to be worshipped, I'm not going to insert my own cultural ideas, I'm not going to be swayed by the milieu of this generation, I'm going to worship God as the Bible says it because this is God's word. Even if no one is doing it and people think you're a stupid kid, you actually believe the Bible, you actually believe all this happened, we shout, Hosanna to the son of David. And ironically enough, it's when that happens, that's when our soul soars because he takes us with him. What a great God we serve. He deserves all the glory. And I'm so happy that I could share this passage with you in the beginning of this year. CGS, we are a worshiping church. This house is a house of prayer and communion with God. Let's make it nothing else, nothing else. If it says it in the word, let's stick to it because of what God has done for us. Let's ascribe to him all the glory and let's obey him with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and we thank you for showing us and revealing to us through your word, your majesty, and your glory how awesome you truly are. There is no one like you. There is no one that could have even fathomed what your plan was, how great it was, how amazing it is, and how you work it out in our lives now, individually, but also corporately as a church. And help us now to submit to you and your will with all that we have, just as you've given every, up everything, your entire life for us. 
so that we could be with you. Let's take this time to pray. And as we pray, I ask that you would lift up your heart to God. Ask God to change your heart so that if you do get excited, it would be about the things of God. If your soul is on fire, it would be for his word. If your body moves, it's because you know that God, and you're confident in this, that God is leading you because you live a life of faith, of trust. Let's pray and lift up our hearts to God.